I just love our worship time here. Um, it is well. You know, I had in my mind after we got through singing that, who takes credit for that? It is well with my soul. Anybody want to take a stab at who takes credit for that? Jesus. Now, if we really believe that, how can we sit on our hands knowing that we got rescued? Rescued from not just a surgeon that saved your life, but someone who saved your eternity. And uh, I'm like, how can you not praise him? Right? If you know it, it's all glory goes to him. Amen. Well, we're going to go into John chapter 8, if you want to turn there. That's where we're going to read from this morning. I'm going to answer some questions that was posed in Sunday school earlier that I wasn't planning on uh, answering those questions, but it was in my notes to answer those questions. So how about that? I love the gospel of John. Um, it's, it's just this transparency of Jesus interacting with people. Now, last week was uh, July the 4th, and, you know, I, I just loved getting back in and reading things like the Declaration of Independence and reading some of the Constitution, and Thomas Jefferson just loved Thomas Jefferson. Now, you know, there's, there's all kind of people who have different slants on him. I don't know if any of them are accurate, and, you know, he was kind of a mysterious person. But one of the things he, he did later on in his life, he took the New Testament and he copied and pasted. He cut and pasted. I put it that way. He didn't do any copying with his mouse. He cut and pasted from the Bible a, a, the collection of all the things that Jesus said. That's all he did. He didn't really believe, he believed that the miracles and stuff like that were just myths that was created by the writers of the Gospels. And, he, you know, just let me just, uh, a brilliant man, I think he spoke four, five, maybe six languages, I forget. He, he just was a brilliant person. Who, who cannot read the Declaration of Independence and said, this guy's only like 30 or 32 years of age and he wrote this. This was from him. But uh, late in his life, he put these collections of the sayings of Jesus because he, not to publish them, not to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you the right New Testament. He felt that they helped him at night before he went to bed. That it, it, they brought a calming effect on him. And I, I wondered as I was reading through chapter 6, 7, 8, and 9, if those passages had a calming effect on Thomas Jefferson, because this is some intense uh, exchanges that Jesus has with people. But here's my question, and I pray that Thomas Jefferson, somewhere in the course of maybe reading his conversation with Nicodemus, that hopefully before he passed away, by the way, ironically, on the 50th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence, two prominent men died on the same day, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, just hours apart, just so happened to be the 50th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. So hopefully somewhere in the latter part of his life, his life didn't end really well. He was so, 
He was so strapped for money, I think he sold his entire library to the Library of Congress just to, just to live, just to have some... It's kind of sad, isn't it? Someone that had that much prominent role in America's history just had to eke out his living late in his life. But hopefully, you know, I, I wanted to... I just want to ask people like that, says, okay, if you believe that the accuracy of the Gospels is good enough to trust what they said that Jesus said, why can't you trust that they recorded what he did? If they, if they made up that, how do you know they made up what he said? I don't know. That's just by logic. That, that was not even my sermon. But uh, I, I just want us to look at this. This is 6, 7, and 8, 9. You read this and you're like, oh, this kind of makes me tired just reading this back and forth. It's kind of like watching maybe the White House press briefing. It's just like, oh, you know, can, can, can people just take a deep breath and like chill out? You know, because these, these people known as the Jews, that's what they refer to. And we're going to start in verse 31 if you want to find out. That the Jews that was just op- in opposition to him, why were they so against him? Uh, he even told him one time, he says, listen, if, if you don't believe what I say, how about just believing what you've seen happen? It's kind of like with reverse order, like, you know, how about the miracles? And they just kind of like looked over that. Why? They were so angry at him. What caused them to be so against him? He never brought anything to harm them. His teaching was right on, but they were so against him. And I think this is, this is the reason. You never find Jesus preaching inside a city. Never find him preaching inside a city. He goes into Jerusalem for the festivals, and ironically, he never spends the night inside the city. And I say never. Um, When he was 12 years of age, he spent a couple of nights there by mistake. But as an adult, even the last week he was there, he would go into the city, go to the temple, and they would head this back and forth, and he would leave, and he would stay up in Bethany. He never spent the night. Because it's like he didn't, he didn't personify the city. He was out where the common people were. He preached mostly to farming communities and fishing villages and people who were barely getting by in life. And, and the people that were attracted to him were those who were sick, those who were demonized, you know, they were bringing all kinds of people to him. So he was ministering to people that were not in power, that did not have influence, but the people of influence controlled them and they saw that he was taking the control of their minds away from them. And they battled him. You're going to see a little bit of this battle. In fact, the verses right before verse 31, there's this heated exchange And it gets even interesting after 31. But just follow with me. I'll start with verse 31. Before I read, here's three things I want you to jot down. I want you to look for. Number one is this. This isn't a scavenger hunt, but just, just one is this. See what he says true discipleship is. Secondly, what does he have to say about sin and the danger of sin? And third, what does he say about those who have no room in their heart for his word? 
because he's going to touch on all of those bases here in just a short order. All right, verse 31. To the Jews who had believed him, this is not the Jews that just argued with him before, because some of them came to believe on him, so he talked to those who had believed on him. He's talking to this group now. This group are those who embrace what he was saying. If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, these believing Jews answered him, well, we are Abraham's descendants. We've never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. We hadn't heard that this morning, have we? Now, a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants. He agrees with that assessment. He agrees that, yes, you're descended from Abraham. Yet you are looking for a way to kill me. Now, if those who are believing in Jesus are planning on killing him, what is the other group doing? He is talking to those who seem like they have reached out to embrace. He says, so... Why you, you, yet you are looking for a way to kill me because you have no room for my word. Now remember, he, if you see just the verses ahead of this, he's just had this adversarial group arguing with him, and now he's talking to these people who believe. But what he's saying, he's qualifying their belief. He's qualifying, just what does that mean? You said, you believe me, let me see if you really do believe me. So he clarifies discipleship here. Verse 31, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Um, A better translation because hold is not really captures the word like it should. If you continue, uh, New American Standard, King James may say, if you remain, is that what, if you have a King James, if you remain, if you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. You have to stay in my word. This is kind of like the idea of abiding, remaining, lodging, like, like someone's home, like a man going to his house, his home. Because your home is where you are the real you. Not that you're not the real you here this morning, but you are you more than you are there than anywhere else. Because we, we don't want you coming in your pajamas and and you, you don't want to see me wearing sandals. You just don't want to see me open-shoed or what, like barefoot. You just, that, that's not going to happen. You know, we, it, maybe some of you have had these nightmares. I, had, I have had nightmares where I showed up at church in my pajamas, and I was like, oh, I'm glad it was a dream. But if you see that, please help me because something's going on with me. But your home is where you relax. It's where you go to. It's where you are you. And he said, listen, your spiritual residence, your spiritual home ought to be my word. This is where you're to live. 
This is not for image. This is not for theory or status or, or I want people to think well of me. He said, this is where you are to live. If you live in my word, then you really are believing. And I don't know how you cannot take, connect those two things. You know, here are believing and he's telling, well, if you are believing on me, why are you trying to plot my death? They believe somewhat, but he's really pressing them. You've got to abide in my word. True discipleship is his word. It's staying in his word. And here's part B. It's right behind this in verse 34. He's, this is not even the end of the sentence. You know, and he says, and you will, if you abide in my word, this is what's going to happen. Two promises he gives it you and gives them and to us. And these are the, the two promises. You will, if you do that, you will know the truth you will know the truth and the second promise is this the truth will set you free now the word he used rightfully provoked them into thinking he just said something about being set free or being released from a place of holding whether it was in a jail or and what they said was we're Abraham's descendants. We, we've never been slaves to anybody. Then how can you say that we're going to be set free? If, we've, if we're not enslaved to anything, and see, they were missing it, weren't they? They, were, they didn't even know they were enslaved. But he was telling them, you will begin to understand the truth and the truth will act in a liberating way. Isn't that what everybody wants today is truth? Against that, that's fake. You've heard that word a few times over the last few months. How can I believe that report? You know, I, I've been suckered a couple of times. Somebody posts something and I, and I go with it and it's all fake. You know, I think one time someone said, hey, pastor, that's a, that's a fake website there. I said, okay. You know, you're like, what is true? What is true? I can tell you what is true. This book is true. If you want to know what is true, stay here. And he says that truth will have a liberating effect. It will set you free. This is not a theory. This is substantive. This is actual freedom. This is actual deliverance. And this provoked these people to saying, well, we've never been slaves. And first of all, they forgot some of their history. But what he says, what he says right after this explains what he's meaning. This is the sneaky danger of sin. That's what I entitled this section of this message. The sneak, and, and those who are in that class can I, you know, I'm, I'm sitting there like, hey, just, you know, I need to record this and play this. Listen to what he said in verse 34. Truly I tell you, everyone who sins, they're saying they haven't been enslaved to anything, anyone. And he replies to that statement, Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Everyone who sins is a slave. This is not my statement. This is the Lord's words. And this is a warning to us about taking sin seriously. He's not, not, you know, just talking to them. He's warning them about the enslavement 
component of sin. This kind of mirrors, uh, and, and, and he's not talking about, you know, the, the sin that we heard people talk about. Well, every day, you know, every day somebody sins. Every day we sin. And I know people probably sit there and say, I don't. Do you know? Do you know that you're to witness to people about Jesus? Do you know that? And if you didn't witness to people about Jesus that day, you sinned. Because he that knows to do good and doesn't do it to that person, it's sin. So there we are. But that doesn't mean we're slave to that. It just means, he, what he's saying is that people who are making a lifestyle of sinning is really captivated by it. They're in bondage to it. In 1 John 5, 18, John concludes that first great short little epistle that he writes, and he says this, Whoever is born of God does not continue in a life of sin. And then he says earlier, Whoever says they have no sin is a liar. So where's the medium? It's what you practice. It's what you embrace as the pattern of your life. And Jesus said, if sin is going to be a pattern in your life, it will enslave you. It will catch you. It will trap you. The power of Christ, he says, comes to set people free from that. To set people free from the power of sin. But make no mistake about the sneaky danger of sin. Because it may come to you something like this. Um, You know, everybody does something wrong. Everybody has a problem. Everybody has a vice. This is mine. I rob banks. Other people overeat. Some people drink. Some people smoke. I just rob banks for a living. You see how we can kind of justify whatever we want to justify? Well, everybody's doing something wrong, and I might as well do this. It's wrong. Everybody's doing something wrong. But the, the sneaky thing about sin is that there's these things that, like, people are not sure about, and, and this voice comes along. This voice, the sin's not going to come to you and says, why don't you rob a bank today? Why don't you go hijack the Brinks truck? You know, we're not tempted. But I hope nobody's tempted to do that here. We're not tempted with that stuff, but we're just tempted to kind of push the envelope some, in some ways that we're just like this to the point that we really don't want to ask anybody what they think. We want to just kind of watch this program on TV and, you know, and, you know not just get on Facebook and say, oh, did you just see this on such and such? The sin doesn't do that. Sin comes in this subtle way. And it says, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with that? See, I I belong to a Facebook group called Assemblies of God Ministers and Adherents. How about that for a group? (laughs) Assemblies of God Ministers and Adherents. And and most of the time I don't read what's on there because it's very frustrating. But they, they, they posted something about uh, a well-known, the name is well-known because he, he's a junior and his dad, if I told you his, his dad's name, everybody, most everybody here has heard this person's name, either as an author or a speaker or a preacher, 
pastor. But when I first saw it, I thought, I thought it was his dad, but it was Junior. And he had been arrested, this, and he was, he was a leader in their church ministry, in their college. Arrested for DUI with his children in the vehicle with him. And you talking about piling on. They were, and then there was somebody was saying, well, you know, there's, you know, there's, the Bible doesn't talk about drinking, it just talks about getting drunk. And, of course, after reading, I, my, my lesser resistance takes over. And I said, well, I'm going to contribute something to this little group. And here's what I said. Here's what I wrote. Out of all of the responses to this man's dilemma, whether those who are defending him or those who are piling on, how many of these would be fitting to use at a graduation for those who've just finished Teen Challenge? You want to get up in front of people who've just went through a year or two year of substance abuse ministry, deliverance, and tell them that the Bible doesn't say anything about casual drinking. Is that what you want to send them off into their next stage in life? You know, because everything is relative. And I'm not standing up here saying it's a sin. But it's a step toward a life that will absolutely destroy you. And what are we supposed to be about? Dabbling on that that's maybe if, iffy? Is that what he's called us to? Is that what he's called us to spend our life doing? Seeing how much we can get to the middle ground and and just kind of live there when he says, if you abide in my truth, my word, that word will deliver you from those kind of things, those kind of surmisings. The exchange is about to heat up here right after verse 34. It's, and you know when people, when people are losing the argument, they raise their volume of their voice and they start calling people names. You ever notice that? <laughs> if, you, if, you don't really, if your argument is not very strong, you just yell and call people names. And you know what name they called Jesus? More than once. You know what they called him? Demon-possessed. They even, they even kind of like innuendo, we weren't born out of fornication. Kind of like they were, we know that your birth was questionable, your conception was questionable. And they're just kind of doing this and be, because they could not have an answer him, so they just started calling him names. And Jesus comes back to the truth The clear danger he said that they had is in verse 35. 35, 36, 37. Now, a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. What he's telling them is that you're living in a, a life of slavery, and you don't have to. You don't have to be the slave that has no permanent place in the family. But someone who's in the family, a son, a son has a permanent place in the family because he belongs. And look at verse 36. This caps the whole thing off when he says this. 
If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Does anybody besides me love the word free indeed or indeed? It's a great word. I don't know who came up with that word indeed. Because it's, it's great. Somebody sends you something and you agree. You can say agree or okay, but just type indeed. Huh? How about that? It's like, hey, what's that? They, they're going literary on me here. Indeed, it's, it's, the same, it's, it's translated really, truly or really. He, it's not the same word as truth translated earlier, but it's, it's ontos. It means in actuality. He said, when the sun sets you free, you are really set free. This is not a wish or a make-believe. When the sun sets you free, you are free indeed. So why do people walk away from the power of Christ thinking, well, I still hadn't gotten deliverance from that? Says who? This book doesn't say that. There's a voice in your head that's challenging the audacity and the authenticity of what God just said in his word. That if you present something to him... He says, he will make you free and you will really be free. Not in some kind of fuzzy, mental, psychological way, but actually free. You know, when uh, I was growing up in schoolyard, there was like one word that someone could call you. And it didn't matter if you had pledged to be a non-combatant on the schoolyard. You were obligated to fight. You ready? I'm on, I'm on a date when I was on the schoolyard. If somebody called you a communist, it was fighting. That, that was about as low a word. Because we, we hated the communists. That was the Soviet. Those, those were, we, we practiced nuclear fallout drills. Some of you don't know what I'm talking about. Some of you know what I'm talking about. The little... Triangle, this is where you go for fallout. There was people when I had a brother-in-law that took a school bus, dug a big old hole in his property, buried it, and that was his fallout shelter for a nuclear war. And I, it is still in the ground. Probably the canned goods are rusted now and nobody wants to go in there. No. But that was, that was what? And when someone called you that, it was fighting words. I don't know what you could have called Jesus any worse than demon-possessed. You know, and you read this, and he says, I'm not demon-possessed. <laughs> he, he actually answered them, I'm not demon-possessed. I don't know, I find that humorous like, you know, <laughs> I'm not demon-possessed, guys. The clear danger, though, is a, is a heart that has no room for his word. If you look at verse 43, it reads something like this. I'm going to paraphrase it. Charles Lynn translation. Why do you not understand what I'm saying to you? It's because you cannot really hear what I'm saying. He wasn't talking about hearing here. He was talking about hearing here. 
He said, why do you not understand? I'm talking as clearly. This was not a parable. He spoke in parables sometimes to illustrate people's hardness of their heart and that they couldn't figure it out because they were that hard. But this is, is, is as elementary explained as you can get. And he says, why do you not understand what I'm saying? It's because you, you don't have the capacity to really hear me. You hear my words, but you don't hear the message of those words. I know you're Abraham's descendants. Verse 37. Yet you are looking for a way to kill me because you have no room for my word. You know, he gives two comparisons, family and slaves. And he says, listen, I'm going to change the status of your life from slave to a family member. A son belongs, but he's clarifying the freedom that he says, when the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. What he's doing, he's clarifying what that freedom does. That freedom changes your status. It just doesn't change your life. It changes who God sees you as. You're no longer a slave. You're a, sir, you're a son. You're a daughter. It's real freedom. It's real existence. It's real life. Now, I'm, I'm fairly certain that there's people here this morning that have certain things that you've battled. And you've had a hard time getting through it, getting over it. But the Lord's message to you today is that you can be free. He can set you free. If you're filled with anxiety and fear or depression, if you have a habit in your life, you say, well, I've tried to kick it and I just, it hasn't worked. I want to tell you, he can set you free. If there's dark things in your life that you can't bring yourself to tell anybody, but he knows, and he's not one to pile on like people on Facebook. He's coming to you and says, I can, I can set you free from that. I can deliver you from that. How about the love of money? Anybody in here has the love of money as a weakness? I remember one of the most contrary people that I ever tried to witness to. His wife was our church secretary in Jacksonville. And he would complain, why, why don't you just build a bedroom down there at that church? And maybe you just sleep down there. You're down there all the time. And he just whined and complained about how much time she was down there until he had an appendix burst. And two or three days later, he finally gets to the hospital and they tell him, we're doing emergency surgery and we're not sure, Mr. Williams, if he was a veteran at the VA hospital, he says, we're not really sure if you'll come through it. You're in terrible shape. And he said, before you put me under, I need my wife in here. I need to get my life right with God. And he surrendered his life to the Lord, came through surgery. They just put a few staples in him because they figured they're going to have to go back in and clean out all that peritonitis and his organs are going to start shutting down and all this. Eight days later, he walks out of the hospital. And his wife, Ruth, came to church the first Sunday he was able to come. And she was like, she had seen a ghost. And she came up to me and said, you will not believe this. 
I actually saw him sitting at the kitchen table making his tithe check out. And I said, oh, my God, he really did get saved. (laughs) All that church wants is your money. That's all they're interested in. Just keep giving them your money. And she said, that was proof. (laughs) And he comes down to me one time, becomes one of my best friends. He says, listen, I know God did a miracle in my life. I believe he's anointed my hands. It's all right. When people come down here for healing, if I lay hands on them and pray for them, will that be okay? I says, you pray away, buddy. And that guy was as dedicated to God as anybody I've ever seen. He goes from here to here, and there's no explanation for that other than the power of God. Would you stand with me? There's people here in this room. You've battled an illness. You've battled a sickness, and it's hung on to you. And would you dare trust God this morning for our breakthrough? Are there's, there's this nagging sin, temptation, that keeps taking you down. And it's time to get free from it. Lord, I pray this morning, the son who sets free people here this morning are going to be really free. Because <laughs> that promise still remains. I also pray that people have allowed room in their soul for your word, that their heart wasn't closed to what you were saying to them this morning. But for those whose heart was closed and they're leaving unfazed and untouched by your voice, I pray sometime, Lord, your mercies would penetrate their life. But for those this morning who definitely been pricked in their heart. That message is for me. I need this broken off my life. I need this sickness broken off. I need this temptation shattered by the power of God. I need freedom. You don't have to tell God what it is. He already knows. But he's here to set you free. And when we sing, there is power in the name of Jesus. Why don't you trust that truth and come here and let God touch your life and give you freedom.